Attention, Paranauts! The following presentation from SimpletonPodcast.com contains extremely graphic gore, repeated sexual violence, frequent drug use, excessive blasphemy, and assorted acts of stomach-turning depravity. Children under the age of six are advised to listen under the supervision of an adult guardian. My name is Dale E. Richardson, and I've seen things you wouldn't believe. My life's work has taken me to all corners of the globe. I've had face-to-face experience with UFOs, aliens, creatures of legend, and have performed countless exorcisms, both with and without Vatican approval. I am here to tell you such phenomena exist in our time that should be treated with discernment and veracity on behalf of humankind. There is one man whose sole purpose is to investigate the vortex between the natural and supernatural. There is one. It's me, Dale E. Richardson. previous episode, we focused on this mysterious killer and his brief but highly successful 1968 spree that literally cacked the collective decks of the people of Barnawatha. Now, in the sixth and final part of this series, I'm returning to the town to conduct a fresh investigation into the case, long since cold. Accompanied by psychic investigator Kenny Fantasia and soundman Ray Thomas, I'll be attempting to finally crack the case like a wallaby skull. Upon our arrival into the town, which has changed little in the interim, the three of us trekked into the Barnawatha Hotel, myself in the presidential suite, and the other two in a twin chair room after Kenny insisted that he and Ray forgo single rooms to reduce the overall cost of our stay. It was in this very hotel that the men from the Melbourne-based Commonwealth Investigation Branch, CIB for short, had stayed during their investigation. Where the team had a penchant for opium, scrabble and you know, Kenny told us that we would channel the collective spirit of the team by smoking opium and playing a scrabble, and if time permitted, you know. While Ray and I would decline to partake from the opium which Kenny had brought in his Indo-Chinese backpack in an apparently premeditated act, we agreed to participate in a game of Scrabble. 
following is an actual recording from the end of the game. That's not a proper word, Ray. P-R-O-G-N is an alphagram for the word prong. So it doesn't actually count. <laughs> you can't blame a guy for bluffing, Dale. Legitimate tactic. I think it's time to balance the rack. Your turn, Kenny. By the way, did any of the men from the CIB actually stay in this room? Or in our room, for that matter? I feel their presence. Even though it was so long ago. I feel them. I feel them. Yeah, okay. It's your turn, Kenny. Yes, it's my turn. It's my turn. You call it bluffing, Ray. But I call it a phony. All you're thinking about now is the rack management. It's okay to be flexible, but you're taking it too far. Enough smoking, Kenny. Concentrate. Yes, it may have been an attempted phony, but what I need now is turnover. I have to do something about my accumulative spread. Ah, fuck this. I've had enough of Scrabble. We're here to do a job. We're here to crack a case. The game's over. Pack it up. Kenny, pack it up and hit the hay. Our first port of call the following morning was Indigo Creek Road, several streets away from the hotel. It was here that 85-year-old Hans Barton, the first victim of the butcher of Barnawatha, was murdered on the side of the road, only metres from his home, back in 68. The sea and the murder looks much the same today as it did back then, with the exception of a handful of brothels and lingerie boutiques that have sprung up along the road. Well rested after a splendid breakfast in the hotel's ground floor restaurant, we showed up the scene of the crime, ready to officially kick off our investigation. Here we are, gentlemen. This is where the killing spree started. Where Hans Bartons began his brief reign as the world's most stabbed man. Ray, I suggest we remain silent now and allow Kenny to do his thing. Yeah, copy that, mate. Time to let him do his thing. Just kick back. Let him do it. Just let him do his thing. Yes. Time to let him do his thing. Ray and I stood back as Kenny, in a deep state of psychic connectedness, paced around the former crime scene, sometimes looking off into the distance, and on one occasion into the heavens above. Then he stopped, dropped his dax, and looked me straight in the eye. Something terrible happened here. It happened here, and it was terrible. Uh, Alright, uh, what can you tell us about the killer? Can you visualize an image of the killer? Where did he come from? Which way did he go? Terrible. 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 Uh, can you tell us, tell us something about the killer? You can't force it. I can't go to it. It has to come to me. But we're on our way now. Yes. 
After a further half an hour at the scene in which Kenny sat trouserless with crossed legs at the side of the road in silent meditation, we headed off to our next destination. Convinced that what we now needed most was an energy boost, Kenny, with Ray and I in tow, headed into the town to have a break and get some coffee at the bakery cafe in the main street. But as we sat at the corner booth near the back end of the cafe area beside the jukebox, Kenny, with his double espresso, and Ray and I with our cappuccino and latte respectively, the psychic began to have an ominous vision. The killer sat inside of this bakery all of those years ago. He did not eat. He sat at a table and drank coffee on a semi-regular basis, just as we are sitting at a table and drinking within the premises but not eating, despite the availability of numerous treats. Yeah, okay, uh, but did he actually sit at this table, where we are now, mate? Hard to say. The layout of the premises was not as eclectic, meaning not only the layout, but actual furniture has been updated. But he came here and he drank a lot of coffee. Is there anything else you can say now? Something that might help us find out who he was? Coffee. He, he drank a lot of coffee. And he did it right here. It was an amazing revelation. Although the bakery was less than a decade old and the premises had been a laundromat during the time of the butcher of Barnawatha, information that had apparently eluded Kenny, we were now knee-deep in our investigation. Had the killer brought a portable table into the laundry mat and sipped coffee while waiting for his laundry? Did he bring an espresso machine? Did he favour cafe lattes, cappuccinos, or the simple short black? If so, were the police ever made aware of this? At any rate, it was time to head off to Indico Creek Park, where 81-year-old Thorburn Thompson had his life brutally taken from him before it had even barely started. The murder site was just off High Street, only a relatively short walk from the bakery. It was late morning when we arrived at the precise location of the slaying. Scene of the murder is pretty much where we are standing now, gentlemen. The park was not so open back then, there was a lot more shrubbery to our left. The twin girls, the only people known to have seen the killer in the act, approached from the north, just over there, and fled in a northwesterly direction to the footbridge, just over there. Kenny, it's time for you to shine. This, this is where it all happened. I have a terrible feeling that this is precisely where it all happened. But I think Dale's already said that. A young life cut short. A silhouette was interrupted in the act of murder. Terror! He was seen by one plus one. They ran in this direction and sought refuge. He could have killed them too. But he chose not to. 
His work on that fateful night was not yet done. Was not yet done. Dig deeper, Kenny. Dig deeper. Who is the killer, mate? Who is he? He is still alive. The butcher is still alive. If not in person, then in spirit. He was from within, not without. And even if he was from without, he would still be from within. Dale, can you follow what he's saying here? We are close, gentlemen. Perhaps too close for comfort. We must proceed with caution. After a hearty lunch back at the hotel restaurant, we headed off to Canning Street where Bernie McIntyre became the third victim of the Butcher of Barnawatha, two hours after Thorburn Thompson had become the second. The tree under which the heavily mutilated body was found was still there, and with the exception of several Asian massage parlours that had sprung up in the meantime, the streetscape remained more or less the same. Ray and I stood under the tree as Kenny paced around the immediate area, his eyes darting around as if he wasn't sure we were alone. Then, with the sun no longer at its highest point, he stopped at a right angle directly in front of us, his gaze fixed upon the patch of ground right in front of his feet. And once again, he dropped his stacks. What's he doing? What's he doing now? He's like a statue. I think he's on the verge of something big. Kenny, can you hear me? Kenny! He's like a statue. Kenny didn't move a muscle for the better part of a long time. When he finally did, he faced us and announced he was ready to leave. As we headed off to the fourth and final murder site in Lansdowne Street, several hundred metres to the northwest, the medium filled us in on what had happened. I was under spiritual attack from a sinister presence. Was it the Butcher of Barnawatha? I'm not sure. But I couldn't move. I had to use every ounce of my positive energy to throw back the attack. It was still early afternoon when we took up position in front of the house where 94-year-old Brendan Thompson was enthusiastically slash-toculated within an inch of his own demise and beyond. Now, there was little of anything to show that the quiet country street had been the scene of such mayhem. The building still stood but was no longer a private residence. These days it operated as an Asian sauna. Still, while we would not seek permission to enter the premises, we would see if Kenny could garner anything of worth from our vantage point. Alright, so that's it. I know this place pretty bloody well. In that building there, the final victim was stabbed over two and a half thousand times and also partially dismembered. Kenny, it's time to do your thing. Take your time, Kenny. You've done a great job so far, son. But now we need something more. Do it. Pain? I sense pain. This was a house of pain. So much pain. So much pain. He entered the house with clear intent and left it with his dire intent diabolically fulfilled. 
Apparently overcome by the magnitude of what had happened in the house in front of us, Kenny collapsed onto the ground, muttering incomprehensibly, as Ray and I helped him up. After we made sure he was okay, we walked back to the hotel and took him to bed where he would spend the rest of the afternoon recovering. Meanwhile, Ray and I would head down to the bar and get pissed with the locals. Maybe someone would share some info. It turned out the barman had something to share. Get you big city fairies another round of piss? Nah, mate. Not yet. What can you tell us about the gut fest back in 68, Cobber? Which aspect of it? Fill us in on anything you think may be useful. You know why we're up here. I was only a young kid at the time, so I don't have much first-hand recollection of the whole thing. But me old man used to get pissed, chin me, then tell me about it as I grew up. And was, uh, was he the pub landlord at the time? Fuck oath. Double duplication. Two L's, two D's. Landlord, I mean, Dale. Oh, for fuck's sake, Kenny, this is not Scrabble. Trevor, please proceed. He was something of a raconteur, me old man, and he spoke about it with any prick who'd listen. He collected newspaper articles about the case. He even made handmade dolls of the victims, which many folk regarded as good for tourism. There was also a lot of gossip about being the publican meant he heard more than his fair share. Talk a bit about Proctor. Proctor Mocklesby was the town's GP. He lived here until he retired in the 70s and moved away. A lot of people suspected him because he was a doctor who must have known a lot about anatomy, surgical incision and whatnot. He was also a keen amateur murderologist. Me old man said he was a regular patron back in the day. He was a charming sort of bloke, but also a bit reclusive. He was often seen late at night hanging out by the dunnies in the park, reciting the works of Digby McWorth Dolben. He had some odd traits, though. He never ordered booze. He often ordered coffee or juice and sat alone in the far corner over there. Coffee. Fascinating. But me old man was of the view that he weren't the killer. Ow! My mother always thought it was Cassidy. Steady on, Mavis. She's talking about Bernard Cassidy, the local butcher at the time. Yeah, that's right. We'd best not speak too loudly, as it wouldn't be too long before it got back to his sprog, who was still living here. But he was the town butcher, and was a suspect for obvious reasons. But it were only circumstantial. Alright, mate. Uh, was he, by any chance, also a patron here? Yeah, he was. He came here often. He was a quiet fella, but uh, get him on the subject of blood and offal, and he'd chew your bloody ear off. Literally, at least once. Some thought his profession would have helped him move around with blood on his clothes, without arousing suspicion. He was also known to have a feisty temper. Ah, uh, too fucking right. Steady on, Mavis. Uh, there were also a farmhand from WA. Bit of a new ager. He wore a genuine spider skin jacket and hung a kangaroo's penis around his neck as a fertility symbol. Or a wallabies, depending on who you asked. He was also suspected by the townsfolk, especially when he'd done a runner back to Perth just after the last murder. Ah, uh, what about the other fella? Um, 
What other, what other fella? Ah, the cape. I knew what this old bitch was talking about. I recalled the interview with Detective Paul O'Connell. A few years ago, one of the town people say new information. He say night of happened to murder. He see man. Man is where Jose. Manto? Chigaokana. Cape. He see man in Cape. Stand across the road of pub. Not to remember time, though, maybe before number two Satsuji. Mother. If really see, maybe had seen Kira before McIntyre-san leave pub. So maybe Kira is wait for McIntyre-san leave pub mitai ne. So why does old Willie-san wait many years before tell information? Then he will interview police and journalist. But nothing. Owari. Trevor, tell us about old Willie. One of our townsfolk, only a kid back then, come out a few years back and said he recalled seeing a man with a cape standing across the road from the pub on the night of the double murder. He couldn't recall the precise time, but it was apparently just before the second murder of the night. If it was a real sighting, the resident had seen the killer just before Bernie McIntyre left the pub, meaning he was followed home, never to make it. Many people wondered why old Willie waited all those decades before coming forward. I don't remember who he told first, but it caused a stir. It was all over the newspapers and he was even interviewed by the police. But it all came to sweet fuck all, and many people began to question his story. Is old Willie still among us? Yeah, he is, and a uh, regular patron at this fine establishment, I might add. Okay, mate, uh... Can you tell us something about him? Oh, I reckon Willie's lost his marbles a long time ago. And that's all there is to that. Tone it down, Mavis. Tell you what, gentlemen. Old Willie is due to arrive for his daily visit within the hour. You can take your inquiry directly to him. Ray and I would keep to ourselves and enjoy a few more beers as we waited for old Willie. Maybe, just maybe, he would give us the crucial breakthrough we were hoping for. Old Willie showed up just before dinner time. Trevor, the barman, introduced us, and Old Willie agreed to talk with us about the mysterious man in the cape. The following is a transcript from the interview. Uh, Willie, mate, before today, we'd never even heard of the man in the cape. Tell us everything you can recall with regards to sighting. The who? The what? The man in the cape. Tell us what you saw. The man in the cape? Yes, uh, no, the man in the cape. Oh, see, I told you he'd lost his marbles. Tone it down, Mavis. Uh, listen, uh, we only want to know about the sighting. The sighting? Trevor, can you make him talk? Sorry, fellas. Sometimes he's as sharp as a junkie's needle, but at other times he's as senile as Mavis. Who was he? What did he look like? Did anyone else see him? Who was who? What did her look like? The man in the bloody cape. The man in the cape. Tell us something, dammit. 
Ow, save your breath, lad. He's away with the pixies. Not so loud, Mavis. What would you like to talk about? The man in the fucking cape, you fucking dead shit. The man you claim you saw standing opposite the fucking pub. Let it go, Ray. Just let it go. Thank you for your time, Willie. Trevor, Mavis, thank you for your time. Ray and I were joined by Kenny in the bar before we headed into the restaurant for dinner. Then we set out into the darkness and made our way to the central part of High Street for a night vigil. Starting from the CBD, Kenny would follow his psychic instinct with Ray and I in tow. Like a spiritual magnet, we would be taken to any place in town that might offer us a clue about the identity of the killer. It was a long shot to be sure, but if Kenny was going to come up with the goods and bring the case to a close, it was now or never. I wish to join hands now and form a circle of trust and strength and love. Give me your hand, Ray. I want your hand. Yours too, Dale. There are only three of us here, Kenny. Don't you mean a triangle? Fuck up, Ray! Just be quiet. Let him do his thing. I ask the goddess of light to protect us from the Dark One. Guide us to where we can shed light on his identity. O princess of the Bronze Age. Guide us tonight. Gentlemen, we can now let go in the physical. For we are now as one. In the metaphysical. Release thine grip. Good. All done. Kenny, it's time to wrap this thing up. My children, I wish to head east. Ray, I want you to take my hand again as we move east. Pardon? Just fucking do it, Ray. We have to trust Kenny. Okay, okay. I'll take his hand. Kenny and Ray headed east, hand in hand, in the direction of Lansdale Street. In the direction of the public toilets, my good self to their rear. But then, after crossing the Barnawatha Chilton Road, it happened. Kenny paused and released his grip on Ray. He then took a step forward and looked around. Then, without warning, he turned around and jobbed Ray squarely on the nose before running off into the night like a mad prick. Run for your lives! Run for your lives, you stupid bastards! After helping Ray back to his feet, I took him back to the hotel and patched him up. We stayed one more night before packing our bags the following morning and heading off. Kenny was found two weeks later in a retirement castle in Portorina, Costa Rica, and immediately deported. He was properly readmitted into institutional care in his native Melbourne. Despite Kenny's best efforts, we had been unable to crack the case. Maybe the mystery was not meant to be solved. Maybe the killer had already faced some sort of unspoken justice. On the other hand, maybe he's still alive and enjoying the twilight of his life. Will the mystery ever be solved, short of a deathbed confession from the still unidentified killer? It's unlikely. On the other hand, as long as Dale E. Richardson is still around, anything is possible.
Should one suffer the grave misfortune of finding oneself on expedition in the Antipodes with a group of rank amateurs besieged by dark forces that they barely comprehend, there is but one honourable path forward. With all the spunk one can muster, summon the King's own 33rd Mounted Grenadiers Regiment, promptly dispose of any Frenchies or Spaniards in the immediate vicinity, Burn the villages. Burn the cities. Burn it all. Should one fail to burn it all, promptly proceed to Plan B.